hello and welcome to episode 106 of the 1099 for the week of August 21st, 2017. I am your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is a consultant for hit detection and a former games writer for Computer Gaming World, 1UP, and a former employee of PopCap and EA. It's a long introduction. Jeff oh, Green. Boy. Jeff, how are you doing today? I am good. How are you? I'm doing great. That introduction actually could have been longer. Like, I was looking through and you just have, like, job after job on all these different... Well. Like, this is happens uh, when you're alive for many decades, <laughs> and also when, maybe when you're not the world's greatest employee. <laughs> oh, I don't know. You stayed at some places for a while. No, I, think it's I, fine. I did, actually. Yeah, actually, I was at Ziff Davis. I think if you take all the jobs together, it's like 17 years. I think that means you're a good employee. Okay. Yeah, you, you didn't get yeah, fired okay. for 17 years, so that I sounds pretty good. Right. Before we really dig into those old jobs, as if Davis and the other companies you've been at, uh, I'm interested in knowing more about what you do at Hit Detection. Because if you look at the website, it it doesn't say too much. I'm guessing on purpose, but like there's not you can't like yeah. look at it and know exactly what Hit Detection does. How did that come about? What's your role there? And if you could give me the elevator pitch for the company, yeah, I I can do all that. But I, first of all, when you mentioned the website, it, it it's an immediate. It's an immediate like flag of shame for me because one of the projects I was I was supposed to be doing when I got hired is revamp that website. When you go there, it's like it's just like a stub, right? Yeah. Like, we're, we're, but that's that's just a sign of how busy we are. So that's that's a good thing, I guess. Mm. At some point, we will have a real website that people can visit. <laughs> um, the the elevator pitch uh, for hit detection and this company uh, was started in two thousand and nine by Engai Kroll, who probably a lot of your listeners know and maybe a mm. lot don't. He uh, used to be the games writer for Newsweek magazine uh, back in the day, back in the, uh, I think, I can't remember exactly when he started, probably the 1990s, late 1990s to early 2000s. And if I'm wrong, he'll let me know. Uh, (laughs) But he he started this as a solo venture when he left Newsweek. uh, And the idea that he had, which holds to this day, uh, all these years later, with a much bigger staff, is to uh, go into a, a game company and look at a game that's in development and do what he can or now what we can in, in an actionable way to, to give them feedback and, uh, and help them improve it before it chips. Mm. Uh, so the, the difference, what we try to tell clients and potential clients before they hire us is the difference between what we do and mock reviewers um, there is a difference because in a mock review, it's basically they're asking, it's usually former press people. Uh, some of our own consultants do that as well. Um, uh, when a game is finished, they come in and they ask them to review it as if they were still in the press to give them a score, to kind of prepare them in advance for what what kind of feedback they're likely to get. Um, what, what we try to do is, is this a slightly earlier version of that, which is, We'll tell them what we think it's likely to get, but what we're also trying to do is say, like, here's here's how we see the game now. Here's the good stuff. Here's the bad stuff. Here's the thing that is is likely to impact your metascore in a good or bad way, and in the time you have left, here's what we think you ought to do. Um, and then we will also, depending on where the game is in development, we will give them a predictive metascore. So we won't tell them what, like, we think, like, your game is an 82, but we will say we think that the press is going to give you an 82. Yeah. So that's really the difference between us and mock reviews. And of course, you know, a couple of us like me have been on the other side. I was a producer at EA and in social media and podcast, but none of us are game developers. None of us are wannabe game developers. We're all basically former journalists and writers. So when we're offering our opinions, that's all they really are you know we're not going in and pretending like we're going to make their game for them or and we have to really walk a fine line there so that developers who don't often know who we are or sometimes they've been hired by the publisher we've been hired by the publisher and not the developers so the developers see us coming in and they're like who the fuck are these guys you know (laughs) we, we we try to tell them like look we're not we're just here to offer a fresh look we're not trying to tell you what to do and I did mock reviews for a short stint, and so I yeah. don't have like a lot of experience in that realm. But something I've always wondered is, what happens if you get the meta score prediction like super off? Like if you retire, yeah. like I think this is going to be like a fifty-five, and it's like a ninety or the opposite, where you <laughs> keep giving like I think this might be like you know up there with a ninety-two, and it just yeah. tanks. Like is that something that happens often? 
I we've we've missed a couple times, but if we missed a lot, we wouldn't have any more business, you know, because <laughs> yes. we would we just wouldn't be trustworthy. I mean, we're we're usually pretty on the money, and and, and it's not it's not like a bragging thing. It's just like for the most part, if you've been in the press long enough, if you follow these things long enough, you know, the ballpark is generally going to be you know obvious. And it's just a matter of drilling down and and factoring in a lot of things. I mean, the thing is, if we if we guess wrong and it and it does better than we say, that's usually not a problem. That just means they can just go, yeah, fuck you guys. See, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> but if it if it's if it's way worse than what we said, they're more mad at us about that because then it's more like, well, why didn't you guys tell us this? Yeah. Why didn't you, why didn't you say? So that's actually one interesting thing about most most clients and most clients who get what we do and, and want our services is they don't want us to come in and kiss their ass. Like they don't need that. They don't need us to just come in and, and validate them and, you know, and just say this is great because anybody can do that for them. Um, their own PR department can do that. And ultimately it's not, it's not helpful, you know, so, so. We, I, I personally hate writing the ones where we have to say the game isn't good. It's just not fun to do. But, um, you know, it, that's the job. And if we weren't doing that, we would be useless, basically. Is there ever any trepidation in being brutally honest to a new client who you get their game and it is just straight up bad? You're paid to be honest. If you're not, mm -hmm. then what are you doing? But is there ever a time? I know when I was reviewing games for like an indie site and you're trying to build up relationships with publishers, I never gave a game a higher score because I liked a publisher. But when I was so young in it, I was worried if I right. give this game a four, I might never get a review copy. They're going to think I'm the <laughs> reviewer guy. Like, is it the same thing with you right now? It, it, it kind of is. The, the difference is that, and it's a huge one, is that they're paying us, yeah. right? So... They've asked us for this feedback. So it's like, well, if you didn't want to hear this, then you probably shouldn't have hired us. You know, I mean, again, like our job isn't just to make them feel better. So I always try to keep that in mind. And of course, you know, we're all people who have been writers most of our career and we know how to say things in, in a diplomatic and professional way. You know, we're not just going to say your game fucking blows. You know, we're going to say like, you know, the combat doesn't really work here for the following reasons. And here's what you might want to do. You know, it's all cast, you know, couched in this could be better or this isn't working or whatever. And sometimes, yeah, there have been at least a couple times where we've had to basically say, like, kill this game. <laughs> you know? this, this is like, this is your only option. And, yeah. uh, and th those are definitely not fun to write. There, there's only in, I've been here now, man, like, I think it's coming up on four years already. Oh, and there's wow. only only one or three and a half. There's only one time where the developer like seriously pushed back and was just like, you didn't play it, blah, blah, blah. You know, and and that was a case in which the publisher had hired us because they had the suspicion. Oh, OK. Yeah, that the game was a piece of shit. This was a smaller publisher and a smaller developer. And we basically confirmed what the publisher said. And here's the other thing. We don't know when there's any, like, political shenanigans going on like that. That is, like, a, a huge reason why we often get hired is that we, we don't know it, but we're often, like, settling some kind of dispute between yeah. it might be publisher and developer, it might be among the developers themselves, or whoever, you know. So th we come in and we're never given any, you know, they don't uh, influence us ahead of time. They don't let us know what people are thinking or if there's any disputes. But if we then come out, like in this case, we saw this game and we were like, are you kidding? Like, this is so, <laughs> this is so bad. And the publisher was like, okay, yeah, we thought so. And then the developers threw a hissy fit and like wrote me a personal email and it was just like, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's like, That's... this is my, this is my job and I was hired by a publisher. The, the personal emails from developers is always an interesting thing. I got, a few of those during my review days where suddenly like when your review is a little bit lower than everyone else's i got yeah. like a email with like links to each review and detailing like here's why yours is this much lower and here's why you did not play our game and stuff like that it, like people get i mean understandably angry i guess because when you put two three years of your life and your funds and your livelihood is tied to something i understand maybe the the knee-jerk reaction but yeah it's yeah. really true it's it's your baby right and yeah. um and your 
you know, you are shitting on their baby, which is, yeah. you know, a terrible image. But, but that, <laughs> that, but that is, yeah, I mean, it's, it is understandable. And, and I, you know, fortunately that, that is really pretty infrequent. Most of the time it's like, yeah, we know that we should have done that. I mean, that was one of the big lessons I learned in my brief time at EA when I was on the Sims team. But the, I think the, the main thing I learned there is that the dev teams basically know what they've got. That's at a certain point, they're they're going to say like, okay, yeah, you know what? This is a seventy-eight. <laughs> this yeah. is like the best we could do, and and there's reasons why that happens. There's a reason why they end up not being as good as as we all wish they would be. Um, and what I noticed in in at least two occasions. What the devs got pissed about when the inevitable mediocre to bad reviews came out, what they got mad about is when something was like factually wrong yes. rather than the opinion. Because then it felt sort of like proof to them that you didn't play it or you didn't understand it or whatever, or that you're just being unfair maybe. Like, mm-hmm. well, they say it didn't have this feature, but it did. If they just did this, they would have seen this. You know, that that's the kind of thing um, that I would see a lot. Um and then the one thing that I saw a lot that that game companies still like kind of a lot of devs still kind of need to get over is the feeling that, you know, well, we did work three or four or five years on this. Like, didn't they consider that like how hard it is to yep. do this? And it's like, you know what? Tough shit, basically. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's sort of how it goes. It's like in the end, we're paying $60 for these things. And if it's bad... Like, it doesn't matter to me how long you worked on it. I just know I got gypped out of $60. That's the thing. Like, you're not reviewing the development team itself or the time they put into, which, like you said, it makes sense why that would be something they'd bring up. But you're, when you're at, when I was a freelancer at GameSpot, they send me a game, I play it, I'm not worried about the crunch they had to go through. I mean, that part sucks. That's a really shitty part of this industry, but I can't worry about the crunch. I can't worry about the fact that if you get an 85 on Metacritic, you get a higher bonus this year. Like, it's not my job to do that. Then it's, I'm going against the audience I'm trying to serve who are just people who are buying this game. And very often if, you know, not everyone reads all these websites, not everyone... Uh, knows the development team and stuff like that. They're just trying to buy a game, so that's what you're reviewing. And that was always like this kind of this back and forth tug of war with reviewing games. It was always such a weird thing. Yeah, and and it's the same with you know any arts or entertainment or even food. You know, like you don't mm-hmm. you don't care how hard the chef worked in the in the back. You know, if there's a fly in your soup. Yeah. You know, or movies the same thing. They're multi year experiences, and nobody's saying like, boy. You know, they worked, you know, Warner Brothers worked so hard on Suicide Squad. I guess let's give it a 90 because they work so hard. You <laughs> yeah. know, you're just like, I paid for this piece of crap. So, yeah. you know, I, and not all developers are like this, obviously, and not all publishers are like this. But it is it is odd to me um, that that does seem to come up a lot on that side where people are just like, they don't know how hard it is to do. And the answer is really like, who cares? Sorry. <laughs> Pick an easier job if you don't want to be criticized. Yeah, it kind of has to be that attitude. Um, I was just talking to Brad Shoemaker recently about what he would have done if there was no games media jobs because he's, he's been doing you know, GameSpot and Giant Bomb for so long and he kind of had this moment of like, I don't really know. Like, I've been doing this for so long, and I think a lot of people who are in games media for that long maybe don't have a safety net because it's just like yeah. you get so invested in it. This is what you do, and there's not a lot of like logical next steps all the time and similar with adam sessler who's also in consultancy right now he did Mm -hmm. a lot of work uh for different companies and um for you do you see this this route this going to consultancy having all this knowledge especially like like you where you've been on media you've been working for publishers you've been all over the place um where you can go to consultancy after games media either dries up or you get tired of it does this make sense to use that knowledge in a business venture like this for different games media people? That, that's a really good question. Um, for me, personally, yeah. For me, this is this is the best job and the one that's made the most sense since I left 1UP and Computer Gaming World. And in fact, I'm working, a lot of the people who work at Hit Detection are all people I, I used to work with at CDW. Uh, mm-hmm. Robert Coffey, Ryan Scott, uh, other people. I Maybe I'm not supposed to say all the names, so I won't. But uh, I, I have no idea. But it's all, you know, it's it, it makes a lot of sense uh, because in some ways it's kind of 
well, for me, it's like an apotheosis of everything I did before. So I'm still writing about games, um, and uh, but I'm also applying the knowledge I did learn it at PopCap and EA. And they're not game reviews, they're not game previews, but but a lot of that skill and that experience comes into play when I'm doing it. I mean, at the end of the day, I I I identify myself as a writer, and the best job I ever had was writing about games, so that's what I'm doing again. It's just that instead of writing them for consumers, I'm writing them for the companies. And it's a huge difference. And, you know, in some ways it's not as fun, quote-unquote, because, uh, you know, there's no room in these kind of reports, so it sometimes can go to, like, 30, 40 pages or more. Oh, my God. Uh, on, oh, yeah, they're they're huge. Um, it's Anybody who's ever, like, jealous of this job, I always say, like, Imagine having a college term paper due every month. Oh. That, that's that's kind of what it's like, you know? Like, I have one due this coming Friday, and, like, I have, like, palpable stress over the fact that it's going to be... Oh, I just cringed when you Right? Oh, it's going like to be... Yeah, it's, gonna, it's probably going to be about 30 pages, and I've written, like, two of them. So, oh. you know... Yeah, so it's that kind of thing. Um, and... But more importantly, like, the writing itself... Like, I don't get to make jokes. I don't get to make allusions to movies or any of that. I don't get to write funny sentences because that's totally irrelevant to what the client wants. They mm. just want to know the facts about their game. And, you know, I had to learn this lesson the hard way early on when I was writing. I was trying to be not, you know, not entertaining, but I'm just used to my whole career. I wrote in my style, right? And I sort of got, not scolded, but I was sort of like course corrected and like, you know what? No one wants to read your flowery sentences. And the more time that you spend on those, the more it's clear that you're not paying attention to what they actually care about, which is the facts and the opinions. Yeah. So that was so, one of the weirdest change. When I did a mock review, I remember being told, like, don't write how you normally do for GameSpot or IGN or anything like that. And I couldn't help myself because you're like you said, right? you're stripping away your style and it feels so bizarre. It's very hard, and that's why these reports are hard for me to this day, even years later. It's because, like, okay, I have to, you know, I have to just write in a very kind of somber tone for the most part, or if not somber, just businesslike. Um, and it, and that's a skill. That's a different skill than than journalism. Um, but to go back to your question, I mean, yeah, you know what what Brad said, and and Adam Sessler's career path. You know, there there is no safety net, and there is no sort of like natural place to go. Yeah. Um, at the end of a at the end of a games media job, it's something that a lot of us at One Up back in the day all faced. I mean, if you look at all the people who were, you know, who were at One Up in those days, like. Uh, Brian Intahar, you know, Luke Smith, all these people are on the media side. I mean, sorry, on the development side now, yeah. or on the publisher side. Dan Shu at uh, Sony, um, because there's just kind of nowhere to go. Um, I, I remember, you know, it's occasionally like a, a talking point or meme on NeoGAF and other places that like game journalists are just want to be developers because you see that's where they all end up. Yep. And at least for me personally, and I know that's the case of, of many other people, like it's not that at all. Like what it is, it's you go there because those are the people you've met over the course of your career, right? That those are the people you have connections with now. Um, like I never wanted to be in game development. I was just a writer. But when I found myself out of a job in yeah, 2008 when I left Computer Gaming World, well, there were no other media jobs for me to have. There was nowhere to go. So where do I go? Well, I know all these people, these different game companies. There's a lot of like jobs where I could be a writer and try to be funny or whatever at different game companies. So maybe that's what I'll try. And I, I think that's where a, why a lot of uh, game journals end up on that side. And now the consultancy thing is really the closest I've ever been to being back at writing about games, which is why it's the best job for me since CDW. It's so strange that there's no natural kind of falling point for a career that is so easy to lose. Like there's like the the games media jobs, like people who have them, they hang on for dear life as long as they can to those jobs because they're so right. rare. But like for for a, a career without a lot of security, 
it doesn't feel like there's a natural thing. Like like you said, you have those contacts afterward where you're like, well, I know someone at Sony. I might know someone mm-hmm. at like Ubisoft or EA. And there's more and more opportunities even. I'm like Chris Waters when he was done at GameSpot. He's now at Ubisoft and he's like hosting streams and stuff like that. And that yeah. stuff wasn't available before and there's more availability for uh, publishers who want people who write about games in a unique way. So it's out there, but it's just, it's strange that there's not kind of a natural next step once those jobs close up. Uh, and if you look at the industry itself, it's changed in so many unbelievable ways since, you know, you started writing and since yep. the early days of like GameSpot and uh, Game Informer and GamePro and stuff like that, where there's more streaming, there's YouTube, there's quote unquote influencers, which might be the yep. worst possible word and description <laughs> for anything, but like. Maybe. Yeah, and a lot of that, give or take, you get some positive, some negative, but I think the most positive change I've seen is the game reviews, which is what we were just talking about, and not just, you know, like, before they were kind of a math equation, it was Mm -hmm. all these different spreadsheets or numbers and reviewers tilt, and you put it in the calculator, and suddenly this game is objectively a 7.8, and that is the quality, because it is a product and not an actual, like, this creation, this piece of art, if you want to call it that. So, I mean, for you, do you feel like we're talking about games in a more important, interesting way than we ever have before? Like, if you wrote reviews today, do you think you'd have more fun with it? Because there's there's more leeway, and there's you're encouraged to explore games in a way that goes beyond just the graphics, the gameplay, the sound quality, and everything like that? Absolutely. Yeah, you, you completely nailed it, really. And... Uh... Yeah, I mean that was that was the worst thing about writing about games back then or writing reviews back then. And computer gaming world, you know, we occasionally tried to get around it. You know, at some point we rebelled and stopped providing scores at all. Um, but yeah, that that uh, formula that you're talking about was su- such an annoying thing to deal with, and, and it, it was annoying that that even became a thing in the first place. I don't even know how it started, but yeah, this thing of like where graphics gets an eight and sound gets a this and then you average it out and i you know in the end like what we would always say to ourselves was it, it's really just a feel you know that mm. that it, we're not gonna you know the exact math average may may be 88 but actually to us this is a 91 say whatever and we would just go with that but then you would get people nitpicking like well that's not what the average turned out to be that's like well that's not it you have a even... great internet commenter voice that's, like that right, is exactly yeah. how i read them <laughs> um and but that's you know it's th- that's what was wrong with that system and i and i i do agree that now it is it is really better than ever and um and i remember at the time when i was when i was thinking about it when I was in the press, I I used to get frustrated when I would read movie reviews or music reviews, you know, things that I would read a lot of my own time where there were so many awesome examples of great writers who would pick like one thing about a movie and spend 2,000 words writing about that and then give it a score at the end. Like Roger Ebert was great at that. Pauline Kael was great at that. Um, Lester Bangs, of course, in the music biz and, and other writers where... Um, you know, the point wasn't to just have a formula and then pronounce a score. It was to it was to treat your own writing almost like a piece of art yeah. or a piece of creative writing, and to um, give like a, a a perception of what it was like to play or just a certain insight or whatever. And and I do think there is so much more of that now. Um, and of course, there's also all the audio and and video options too. And then. Um, and then the other thing that I think is great about today is um, the diversity, frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you have more and more people of all different kinds of backgrounds, all different kind of ages, all different kind of identities, all writing about games when it was always just like a bunch of dudes yeah. back when I did it. Uh, and, and it's not just to be politically correct or whatever. It's just that it's way more representative of who plays games, which is everybody. So, and also, like, when you're getting different perspectives, you may not always like them, um, but it just can't help but make you think more, which this is always a good thing, you know? Yeah, that's one of my favorite aspects of it, because yeah, everyone always says, like, oh, you're trying to fill out a checklist of the types of people who are in games media, but that's not it. I was just talking to Rami, and he mentioned uh, he feels there's 
all these different de- game development ideas that haven't surfaced yet because there's people all over the world who have different upbringings, different backgrounds, different thoughts on things who don't have the tools yet. And once they get the game making tools, they can make things where you really go, wow, I never thought of that because it's not just the standard people making games. They can break right. genre conventions because they aren't stuck to genres. They haven't made games before. They can try these things. And that's the same, I think, right now with this type of writing where there's a lot of people who I disagree with in their criticism um mm-hmm. and it's uh tevis thompson who i've had on this podcast he r- rates games in a way that very often i'm like we're on the entire different end of the spectrum but he talks about them in a way that makes me think in the same way with carolyn pettit and same way with austin walker and people like yep. that where even if i disagree some of the most interesting reviews are the ones that challenge what you think about a game because that might change your opinion like oh maybe i didn't think about it that way or it might make you kind of battle in your own head of like, no, this is why I like the game. And then you form a stronger, more intricate, more interesting opinion. And that's why this new kind of wave of criticism is so fascinating to me. I totally agree. Yeah. You're just getting people with, with different points of views, different perspectives, bringing, you know, bringing that knowledge and their creativity and their expertise in a way that, you know, if you're just going to read people who are all alike saying that agreeing on the same thing all the time, it's like, why, why are you bothering? You know, yeah. you, you don't just need your opinion validated by people just like you. Or if you do, then I don't know. <laughs> yeah, then I don't really know. It seems there's, like you're wasting no your time. You. Yeah. yeah, that was like when I was when I was younger, when I was like junior high, I remember scouring the Internet for things that agreed with me. But like once you, once you grow up a little bit, you're like, it's OK to see people say they don't like the thing you like, because then you can talk about it more you can learn more about why you like it or maybe why you don't like it as much as you thought and the other thing you mentioned i think is totally right is the idea of a game review picking out a certain aspect of a game and focusing on that and that could be the review itself you don't have to when i was in high school there was this five paragraph essay format where it's here's the intro you have to support these three points and then you conclude and that was that's how we write reviews very often now and i'll be i'm guilty of it when i used to do it because that's well, Everything we all I learned read. that way. Yeah, right? and that's what, yeah. And we thought it was like that, where, okay, the intro paragraph has to pretty much encapsulate your feelings. The next one almost always, if it's a story-based game, is the story. Second paragraph is always talking yep. about the background of the game. You move into how it feels, then you might we want to make sure around the end you talk about how it looks and the sound design and stuff like that. And it becomes this formula where you're just plugging in you know new character names new mm-hmm. terms based on the game reviewing instead i um jason concepcion is one of my favorite writers right now who mm-hmm. talks about games he was at grantland and now he's at the ringer and i had him on to talk about a metal gear solid 5 piece that just focused on this one mission that he really really enjoyed and it, it talked about how the game played and everything like that but it did it in this kind of vertical slice that just worked for me where yeah i now right. know his opinion it's interesting. I want to play that game, and I didn't need to get the standard bog review of it. And I think that's stuff that we can explore more because it is creative writing. It's not just noting down why uh, this part's good, this part's bad, 8 out of 10. Like, that doesn't work anymore. Right. I, I don't think it works. And, yeah, I mean, like Pauline Kale, again, is a great example for me. She She's uh, she's passed away a while ago, but she was the film critic for The New Yorker back in the day, and she has a number of books and I can't think of like a, a movie writer who I disagreed with more like all the time. <laughs> I was constantly pissed off at her reviews. And yet I have her books because the writing was so good. And, and I liked the fact that she just wrote about what she thought. And she knew going into it, you know, in a lot of these cases that she was going to be slamming ga- movies that other people were taking for granted were awesome. And yep. she would have contrary opinions, too. Like, she was a huge Brian De Palma fan, so she was always writing these apologetic reviews of even, like, his <laughs> worst movies. He made some great ones, but he made some terrible ones, too. And a new one would come out, and you'd go, well, this is going to be another gush from Pauline Kale. And it would be, and it would be so annoying. And yet, when you read it, like, she could justify it all through her writing. You know, it, yeah. it, it was just, it was the experience of, of reading her as a writer that was so awesome, even if yeah. I disagree with her opinion. I... I really do. I'm, I'm the same way. Like I usually kind of hone in on certain writers in the industry. And Austin Walker again is one who. Yes, he's I, awesome. Yeah, we were both freelancing at Gamespot at the same time. He was also at Paste, and when he first published his Battlefield Hardline review, it really dug into like police brutality and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, this guy's doing something different than what a lot of us are doing, and I like it. It's interesting. It's like making me think about writing differently than I ever ever have before. Do you have certain writers, um, certain uh, people at 
any of the major sites or even smaller sites that you you always look toward their opinion whenever a new game comes out like certain people you just kind of hone in on as like this person i always read in games media um that's a that's a good question i mean i you know we mentioned Austin. He's definitely one. And Patrick, I mean, I think oh, yeah. the, basically all the, the, the Waypoint staff is, is fantastic. Um, of course, the Giant Bomb guys, uh, I read them all the time. Yeah. Uh, pretty much goes without saying. Uh, there's, um, you know, I'm trying to uh, look at uh, some of the video sites too like the uh what's good games women i'm, I'm trying to oh keep, yeah that's keep great up on, on what on what they're doing now so really um you know i think there's just actually a lot to choose from um and then you have some you know really long-term veterans like andy mcnamara at yeah. game informer who's still doing amazing work and you know speaking you were talking about people who uh you know who never leave their jobs you know, he's a guy, he's a guy who's been there for decades. But what I always think is like, well, you know what? I would never leave there either. I, not, if, he's going to be 70 and I will of, not judge him. Right. I mean, that's the thing is if computer gaming world had been able to hang in there, like I probably wouldn't have left it now. You know, yeah. I, I left because Ziff Davis shut down. So, you know, yeah, I, I think there's this, it's hard for me to single people out. I singled out a few, and it, but I, I know I left out a lot of people I admire. Um, but, but I think that you know the bigger point is like it, it's really kind of a golden era of, of lots of great people with lots of great viewpoints. Um, you know, writing about games, it just feels like kind of a, kind of a, uh, a, a renaissance era at the moment. Um, it's yeah. really kind of exploded in different ways, and you know, it's easy enough to pick on the quote-unquote influencers and YouTube reviewers or whatever, and it's easy enough for, for press people to kind of, like, look down on them. But, you know, from from my perspective, it's it's just more people. Do, it's it's made the process more democratic. You yeah. know, it's, it's enabled people who never would have been able to get press jobs because they're so hard to get. There's so few jobs. It really opened it up to anybody who has a camera and a mic. And the good people are just going to surface to the top, right, or – at least the you know people who uh, who are able to in some ways I, I don't know I, I don't want to say it's luck but there's <laughs> always there's always a number of factors that cause people to surface right it's yes. time timing and luck and and hopefully talent yeah it's I, I think it would be silly for the people in games media to ignore YouTube and influencers and stuff like that because there are some people who. Look, I'm never going to get PewDiePie. I'm never going to get the people who <laughs> yell at horror yeah. games. Like, that's not my thing. But there's yeah. actually legitimate, real good content that's out there from people who are making video essays about games, who are exploring them in ways that you, know, you can't really do in traditional writing. And that is absolutely out there. And, I mean, yeah. even if we both, I think, have a great fondness for game reviews and, like, the old-style way of covering yep. games, I mean, you do a lot of streaming yourself, and you found a big audience with it. Yeah. So, w with that, did you... Did you try to emulate what you saw other streamers and people do out there? Or for you, <laughs> since people already knew who you were from your times in games media, and also I would assume how often you appeared on Giant Bomb helped you know get yeah. you in front of people. Could you just kind of be yourself, play games, and be just fine because you already had this established base audience? I, yeah, it's some of that. It, it, it's some of it's some of a few things. I mean, there was that to start. Like I knew I was I knew that I was lucky enough that some people would watch right away because of of knowing who I was, but when I stream now, and actually I've been on kind of a hiatus, so anybody who watches me and is listening to this, I apologize. I will, <laughs> I w I will be back. Uh, but, um, you know, every time I do it now, there's inevitably going to be people on Twitch who have no idea who I am now because, you know, it's been a long time. And, uh, you know, I left the games press. I, I tweeted about this right before uh, we started here um, nine years ago. So... You know, there's like going to be little kids who literally weren't alive, who who are who are watching Twitch, who have no idea who the hell I am except I'm just some freaking old guy with gray hair playing games. And like often that'll be the you know somebody will come into the chat and I get to see lol, who's this grandpa? You know, because they have they have no idea who I am. But fortunately, you know, like one good thing about getting older is that you stop caring about stuff like that. Yeah. So like I don't you know it doesn't make me feel bad or like mm. uh, you know I I just like well if you don't like it and you don't like me there's the door you know yep. there's like a thousand other Twitch channels if you don't want to watch 
Um, but r- right from the start, you know, whether people knew me or not, I, I did feel like I- I'm just going to be me on, like, it wasn't, I didn't need to come up with some sort of gimmick or yep. I didn't have any kind of angle because I figured in some ways it was just, I I am the angle because I, I know I'm older. So I know that that alone makes me sort of unique on Twitch and these other things. And I tried to just approach it from that, from that yeah. perspective of I've just been around a long time. It doesn't make me better or worse. It's just what it is. So I know that when I'm talking and when I'm broadcasting, you know, first of all, if I tried to be like PewDiePie or something, that would just be like the most embarrassing thing <laughs> for me. Or the funniest gimmick. Or, or, or the funniest gimmick. Or maybe the funniest gimmick. Maybe it'd be funny once or something. <laughs> or maybe it'd be funny any, I don't know. Maybe I need to think about this. Yeah. But, but, um, yeah, but I, I, I just gotta be me, man. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what have you learned since starting doing it? Like, what's, have you like, I think all this yeah. stuff is a skill. People forget and they assume like, oh, YouTube is easy. Podcasting is easy. Doing this stuff is easy until they try it and realize like, yes. oh, when I see myself on video, this is an awful thing I do or this certain uh, vocal thing I have is really annoying. I should stop doing that. Have you learned a lot and feel like you've gotten better since starting doing it? I've really tried. Um, <laughs> and I've been trying to do that ever since we started podcasting back in the day. Like I know that one of my worst habits when I started it at uh, CG, when we started the CGW radio was my constant, mm-hmm, 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 yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I may have even done it to you on this, I don't even know, but I've tried really hard to stop doing that because it's so annoying when you listen to it. But the problem is in when you're talking to people face-to-face, you're always doing that constantly as part of the flow of conversation, as part yes. of the, like, yes, I'm listening to you, I'm not checking my smartphone, or maybe I am checking my <laughs> smartphone, but I'm going to pretend like I'm listening by saying, mm-hmm. Uh, like that's what I do with my wife, you know, uh-huh. sure. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What'd you say? But so, but you can't do that on, on a podcast because everybody at home is kind of doing that themselves. So you have to learn to just kind of shut your mouth and let the other person talk. But I mean, other than little things like that, yeah, I mean, like I had to get used to, like, I don't like to go back and look at my live streams now because when I see my face, I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm so old, you know? Like, I, don't, I try not to get uptight about that stuff. I think just learning, too, in chat uh, when to ignore stuff, when to put the clamp down. For me, um, the bottom line for me on, on my chat has always been, I don't care if you make fun of me or call me names or whatever, but it's like leave my family out of it and um, also leave each other alone. Like I, I don't like when, when chat starts arguing amongst themselves yeah. and, I, and I definitely don't like it if, you know, if anything comes up about my family, which is why, you know, all these decades later, I still don't, you know, I may post about my wife or my daughter, but I never say their names and I never post pictures because they didn't sign up for that. You know, yeah. that's my thing is to be in public. So did your daughter think your job was cool when she was younger? Like, did she think like, <laughs> oh, man, I have a cool dad who gets to play games earlier. Or was it just another level of like, my dad's a nerd? That's pretty funny. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know if it's different because she's a girl or not. And I, I know how horrible that sounds. So I don't mean it that way. But but uh, but I, I do know that at the beginning when she was old enough to get what I did um, like I was just her, her nerdy dad and she didn't think much about it. But what happened was some, some kids in her middle school, some boys knew who I was and were like, I, that I was like a celebrity to them. So it annoyed her cause they were like, oh my God, they think you're cool dad and they have no idea. And like that happened in high school and even in college too, where like other people who she knew knew who I was. And now that she's older, I think she acknowledges that it's it's kind of a cool and nice thing, um, but we have a long-standing relationship of her not really giving me much of a break uh, in a very loving way. <laughs> you should bring a bunch of dads' podcasts back. That was one of my favorite yeah. listens with like Vinny and Will and everyone on there. Like, I am yeah. not a father myself, but I remember yeah. just like listening to that while driving to work and thinking like, oh, being a dad sounds cool. Like it was, that was <laughs> yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. And of course, my kid was always older than them, so it was it was always fun listening to their newbie perspectives. <laughs> and, and you know what? Being a dad is a lot of fun. Like I, 
it really is awesome. And, you know, even just on the point of gaming, it, it's like, like once they're old enough, you realize you have this perfectly, you know, you have a, a subject for brainwashing that like can't go anywhere, right? Like yeah. they're, they, they inherently trust you. They're home with you and you can now like, you know, like I played Ocarina of Time with her and it's like one of the best gaming experiences I ever had. Um, yeah. and, uh, because being able to see it, a game that you love through your, your kids' eyes is such a wonderful experience. So, yeah. I recommend yeah. it. Maybe not for everybody. <laughs> being a dad, eight out of 10. That's really Eight out of 10. Yeah. About. Would, would do again. <laughs> To, to get back to games media a little bit, um, we all both mentioned that you know there's still some of the best reviews in games writing right now that there's ever been, even though most of the industry is dominated by video. Uh, is the this current state of games media with Twitch and YouTube kind of being at the forefront, even if there's value to it, and I think we both like certain aspects of it, is it kind of disheartening as someone who wrote for that long? I mean, you have an English degree. You mm-hmm. were a big part of like the a lot of the bigger sites back then. So do you still have hope that a website dedicated to great mm-hmm. games writing like Waypoint mm-hmm. can not just survive, but be big, but be able to keep expanding, keep getting new writers? Because right now I think Waypoint's doing great and I hope for the best, but we don't know what the longevity is because you just don't know at this point. It's There's always this back of my mind worried, like, oh, I hope Vice isn't just putting money into it and then yeah. as soon as they realize video is better, that's what they focus on. So do you think there's, that's still possible for maybe the industry to swing a little bit back, more back towards writing? Um, yeah, I would I would hope so, like you. Whether, whether it can happen, I, I don't know. I mean, we just saw uh, a few weeks ago that Glixel shut down. That was... The Rolling Stone uh, arm of oh, so game writing. That one's weird. So it didn't shut. Well, down. you're right. It yeah, didn't shut down. and I, Sorry, I thought it did too for the longest time. Right. Yeah, they laid off their entire staff, and then I think Brian Crescente. Is right, now Brian Crescente took over, and they're based out of New York now. So, right, my apologies. They didn't shut down, but they did lay off the entire San Francisco office. Yeah, that was awful. Uh, and uh, you know, and and there was here you had like a major media outlet, Rolling Stone. Who, and yes, they're still around, so let's not talk about them in past tense, but they yeah. did significantly downsize. Uh, and, uh, I mean, who knows how long that's gonna last? I mean, it was frank- just a year frankly, that's, yeah, it's just a year and they kind of half pulled the plug or whatever. Like, it's never a good sign when, when a, a site does that. Um, but, you know, look now at, uh, at Giant Bomb, who have been around for a long, long time now. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, ironically got bought by, by CBS. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that was a great thing for them, right? I mean, I think it definitely ensured their longevity. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, for sure, I, I, I do hope that places like Waypoint can survive. Um, we, there, we always want more great things to read, and I, I, I think it will, but, um, there's yeah, there's just not a lot of fighting against video and and live streaming and you know that stuff's definitely not going to go away. That's only going to get more dominant, I think. Yeah, but hopefully people still want to read. That's uh, that's the hope too, and like maybe the route for a lot of stuff like that will be Patreon or something. Like like if if a major company doesn't want to support writing because they assume, I mean everything you've seen all these layoffs lately where it's like you know shift to video, shift where we're we're turning to video and stuff like that. Maybe Patreon is some sort of route. I do know some really great games critics who are using Patreon as a route, even though that's right. also another thing similar to things where it's like. I don't know if this is going to last. Crowdfunding is in this weird spot where it's not that old. And yeah. I I don't know. Here's what would terrify me. If I suddenly decide I'm going to do Patreon, I get this big load of money at the start. Like my income is this weird moving target where if someone suddenly who is a Patreon supporter of you and they give $20 a month or something like that, if they get laid off or if they get a new job with a lower pay they can't do that suddenly they're going to stop subscribing to you and your income's down so the fl- fluidity yes. of that is something I and mean, would that terrify you have you ever considered patreon i i totally considered it um uh, a few times actually i wish it had kind of existed uh in 2008 when one up kind of imploded because i yeah. think that a lot of us cgw radio people might have considered that as a, as a real thing back then um, but that didn't really exist at that time. 
Um, there, there was no way to just say, well, I'm just going to do my own thing. Um, uh, so, but at the time I left uh, PopCap in 2009, that was the time when I, I, uh, I really did consider it. Um, There's a, a couple people uh, formerly in the industry too that I considered about teaming up with them. And we had, we had sort of behind the scenes talks about maybe doing something. And, but I was, yeah, I was nervous in the way that you were talking about. I mean, first of all, especially back then, I was still putting my kid through college. You know, I'm the, I'm the main breadwinner at my house. So I, you know, I have this, I'm, now my daughter is out of college and living on her own and has a, has a well-paying job. So mm. thank God. <laughs> so I don't have to support her anymore. She's going to be supporting me soon enough. But, uh, but I, I really had to, unfortunately, money was really a thing that I had to think about. You know, it's like, well, I can do this. Maybe, maybe people will want to watch me. I mean, even in 2009, and that's like, you know, many years ago. Or I'm sorry, no, when I left PopCap was 2013. So that was just four years ago when I was con seriously considering doing this. But I was like, well, do people even still remember who I am? Is, is, yeah. is the audience going to be as big as it was in 2008? Is this something I can maintain, um, you know, Am I going to have to get a business manager or something? Because I'm not good at that part. Like just being able to be on air and and blabbing about games isn't enough, right? You have to you have to really manage this thing if you're going to make a go of it. But then Engai came along with basically an offer I couldn't refuse. You know, with a steady job and a steady pay paycheck and and all that. And it it just was it was I felt it was too much of a risk to go the Patreon route, even though there's a lot of times when I think that could have been really, really fun for me. Yeah. Like you look at Drew Scanlon and that's like an incredible story. Yeah. Just like I, I talked to him recently and it's just that he gets to travel the world and do exactly it's what so he loves awesome. and get yeah. supported with a really large sum of money is like incredible. Yeah. And th I mean, there's also the other side of that where people who deserve to get big money from Patreon and then it just doesn't work out. And that's, Again, a scary thing where if you commit yeah. yourself to I'm doing this and you have to be committed to it if you're actually going to do it. You can't just half-ass it. Uh, it That's I think right. it terrified me if you, you come up with like, I'm now making $200 a month and I don't know what to do kind of thing. So yeah. it's, it's, it's a very weird thing. I'm interested it, to see kind of how it shakes out um, for people yeah, who be do it well. And, yeah, and I think the people who do really well are the people who do, you know, they are able to put in that effort and that commitment and that time. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're they're the ones who who just, you know, that that's usually always a difference between, you know, uh, that's what I always think about. You know, it's like, well, how come, you know, how come Gary Whitta was able to, like, you know, <laughs> become famous writing Star Wars movies? And like I didn't I could I'm, I'm a good writer. It's like, well, <laughs> because he did it. That's yep. why, you know, he he sat down and he made the effort to do it and I didn't. So that's usually the, the difference. Yeah, there's, there's, there's always luck involved, but a lot of it is like an insane amount of hard work and then being in the right place at the right time. Like usually Absolutely. it's not like luck and you're just like, ah, I ran into this. Like, no, usually it was planned and then I was in a good spot. Like it's just exactly. kind of how that mostly goes. Uh, you mentioned EA and PopCap before and yep. I now work for uh, game developers as well. So I, I made that shift for mm -hmm. you. What, if anything, did working at these places change about your perception of publishing and development, the publishing and development side of games? Like, let's say you yeah. go back to games journalism, which is always a weird term, games media tomorrow. Would your experiences at these companies at all change how you reviewed, covered or talked about games? Or did you already kind of have a good idea of what it was before you got into it? I it's more that I th I thought I did. Okay. I thought I understood it more because I spent a lot of time going to developers and interviewing them and writing cover stories. I did all that, but but being there day after day after day is a, is a much different experience, you know, because you really palpably see like, "Oh my god, that's really is all these people are doing every single day for years." And you know, you take like one engineer or one 3D artist and like their whole job might be to Take a 3D artist. Might their job might be to just make the lamps that appear all over the world in, in an RPG in their houses. You know, yeah. Like it, it's it it's a lot of work and a lot of it can be like kind of tedious. And also seeing how all these different systems come together, where you've got all these people who are just working on lighting and all these people who are working on objects and the way all these things have to go together, it's like crazy that a game actually comes out at all. 
right? So that that's sort of why that's why I get why the, the you know the more bitter people will say like, don't they know how hard we worked? Like <laughs> yeah. that that is the thing that I did learn. Like wow, they really are working super super hard. But like I told them in at at the time, like no, it really wouldn't change my writing because it, it really kind of goes back to what you and I were talking about before. You know, at the end, it's really you're you're serving the consumer. I mean, I think the only thing that might change for me if I went back now is maybe I'd be a, a little less harsh or less snarky on the negative reviews. Like, I don't think it would stop me from making snarky jokes or whatever. But but especially if it was coming across as personal, yeah. th- then I might try to curb it. I was probably a little ruder than I needed to be at the time, um, just from maybe not fully understanding um, but honestly, I can't really think of any review I actually regret, even yeah. as har- even as harsh as it was. Um, so that that might be it. I might be a little more sensitive to people's feelings, but I don't think it would change. I would certainly not be go easier on any game. No way. I would never yes. do that. I think that's. I'm similar in terms of. I don't think I re- regret any single review I wrote, but maybe my tone and a certain snarky yeah. almost. I think I don't know if I ever have, but I, I think it's wrong to ever assume that developers are lazy. Um, and I think we very yes. often look at like, man, like this. I was just talking to Rami, and he said like, no one. There are no people who set out to make bad games. This is a very interesting collaborative experience that you might start at one end and certain things happen that might even be out of their control that lead to a bad game. And I don't think I would ever go easier on someone. But there is maybe a certain level of compassion and empathy I have now having seen the the entire development process, seeing a game, yeah. all the stuff that needs to get tweaked right before something gets gold, understanding yes. that it's a miracle that a video game ever happens, <laughs> like right. with and how that some that stuff goes. But what you said is is exactly right. I mean, it, there's you you can't give them a break in the end, but you can you can have some empathy and just try not to be like overly mean about it. I mean, I think back to when uh, Computer Gaming World reviewed Daikatana. You know, obvious whipping boy. Um, and uh, we said in our review something something about, like, it was like an over-the-top harsh review. Mm. Uh, and again, it was a bad game. Uh, it didn't deserve a good review. But we said something along the lines of, you know, I don't think it was this harsh, but it was along the lines of, you know, the developer should be taken out and shot or something like that. <laughs> well, you know, obviously, yeah. you know, people on the development, we got a letter from them, and they were... They were really upset, and of course they should. They they deserve to be upset because, like, what a horrible thing to say. Like, no, they they don't deserve to be shot. They, yeah, you know. But um, you know what? Uh, what I learned mostly at EA, which 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 was super important to me, was, and I learned this right away, which was that what we always assumed when we were writing game reviews is like you would see something in the interface or something and it would just be obvious to you. Like, why the hell did no one think of doing this when it's so obvious? Why didn't they do that? The answer is always they did. Yep. You are not you are not smarter than them. They're, they're not stupid. Somebody did think that up, but it couldn't be done for whatever reason. Maybe because if the engineers worked on that, then they couldn't fix these 200 other bugs. Or to do that was going to cost this much money or whatever. So there's always reason. And maybe the reasons aren't good ones, right? Maybe they should have chosen to fix that thing. But it's not that they didn't think of it or, like you said before, that they're lazy. It's that there's, like, compromises every single day on these dev teams. And somebody has to make really shitty decisions all the yeah, time I, just to get it out the door. Developers know what's wrong with their game. Like, when they, they see a review very often... I don't think from everyone I've talked to, they're usually not surprised by a lot of the negative comments or the positive. Exactly. Like they, they know their game way better than you. So if suddenly yes. like, I can't believe this person said that maybe if they see a review where I, I would assume some developers think that there are reviews out there who just try to have a different opinion for the sake of having a different opinion. Yeah. Um, which uh, I would, I don't know a lot of people like that, but it's, it's probably happened before. Yeah. Um, but I would, I would assume every developer when they see a review, like, yep, of course that that's what got called out because like you said, this certain aspect of the game we had to focus more time into and it came at ex- the expense of this other part of the game. Like it, it's this, it's a, it's a give and take. You can't, unless you are given unlimited resources and are allowed to make a game as long as you want, like you have to make certain calls. 
Right, right. Unless you're a blizzard or or it or somebody who's allowed to just say, well, you're going to get it when we say so. Yeah, or Valve, you who's know, probably still making Valve. Half-Life 3, maybe. Or, or, like... yeah, maybe, but right, they, there's no pressure, right? There's no pressure from stockholders. There's no pressure from anybody to get these things out the door, which is which is awesome. Um, but, you know, yeah, for everybody else, there there are hard deadlines that it's just too bad if it's not done. That's why there's day one patches. You know, that's why these things happen. I mean, even in my current job now, you know, we'll list like 25 things wrong with the interface and they may still have time, but, you know, they'll say like, can you please stack rank these? Cause we're only going to get to like 10 of these. Yep. And, and if we say, yeah, but these 15 are all important and your game is going to suffer score wise because of that, they'll say, yeah, we know, but just give us the, the five anyway. Yeah, it's like the broken but shippable kind of thing where it's like, yeah, we'll get to it later. Like, we don't have time. We have to hit this certain deadline. We have to make this thing gold and then we can deal with it later. Yeah, uh, and, and they literally have no choice. You know, it's yep. easy enough for us to go like, well, why didn't they delay it two weeks? It's like, because they can't. Because no. of so many reasons that have nothing to do with you. Suddenly it's out of this certain fiscal quarter. Suddenly you're now paired up with a similar bigger game with a bigger publisher next to it. Like, the fact that it sounds easy to just do that, but I think in the long run it sucks that there are so many broken games published now it totally does and right and yeah just to reiterate this is not to excuse them at all yeah. this is like still nobody gets cut any slack but it just is it's just to understand the process more like this is why it happens it doesn't yeah mean it, it doesn't mean it doesn't suck i totally agree it it's it is it is sucky when broken games ship you know it, it as a consumer that should not happen 60 dollars is a lot of money it is for a game you know I think it's only going to get worse, too. I feel like a lot of us talk about how, like, oh, well, this is kind of, like, the start of this time, and then eventually we'll understand, like, the audience will kick back and, like, less broken games will ship. But with early access and stuff like that, I think we'll see more and more games that aren't done, and then we'll be paying beta testers. Well, right. That was back in the old console PC wars, right, which thankfully don't exist anymore, really. But back when, when that was happening, that was always one of the big arguments of the console games, right? They shipped working. Mm. But, you know, because it was just a closed thing, you know, it was done. Yep. Now they have the same luxury that PC developers had, which is, well, we'll we'll patch it. So now they get to cut corners in the same way that PC developers have always been able to cut corners. So that's it's a good and bad thing, right? It's, it's I think it's bad for day one. <laughs> yeah, I I'm fascinated by how it actually develops because right now this is not a console thing. This is a PC thing. But when you talk about early access, it can be frustrating to see things come out and you're like, this shouldn't even be out in the wild. But then you get something like yeah. Battlegrounds and that releases and I'm in love with that game and I'm yeah. happy it's out now and not at the end of the year. Like there's definitely, yeah. there's that give and take. We're still, I think I just said this in another podcast, we're in the, the early access days of early access where we don't really know yeah. how a lot of that stuff, what's the right type of game, what's the, the right level in the development process to ship to you know actually start charging for that like to... uh, it's such a huge question it's yeah. still, we're still just not sure yet and i'm right we're not see, yeah, like, yeah where I, that I, goes yeah no i always dread when our clients ask us that because it's like oh, i'll know you yeah. know because like there's no there's no good answer to that i mean you know yeah battlegrounds is the perfect example like who knew right i mean it sold like five million copies or something like that right right and it's janky as hell right it really but is. It, it doesn't matter I mean, I can totally imagine that if we had looked at that game, you know, it's entirely possible that we might have said, like, you don't put this on early access yet. It's still, there's still way too much that's broken. And that would have been totally wrong. Yep. Right. I mean, but, but who knew? Like, you, you just, it, it's impossible to know. I, like, I, I think that game is a, a great example of it just being in the right time, you know, right place, right time. There have been other games that have done the kind of Battle Royale Hunger Games thing, but he just, whatever combination of factors, including the, you know, the fact that it's obviously a hell of a lot of fun, but somehow this is the one that broke out and it's not even done. Right, so. It's so funny because so many people are like, oh, this is such a novel idea. I'm like, it's not a novel idea. Like you said, it's been done. This one just yep. a, a confluence of everything. And speaking of luck, right place, right time, right just like the simplicity of it to a certain extent. Like there's, it just yep. it just worked for this very moment. Um, and I mean, speaking of Battlegrounds, uh, last thing I want to hit, I don't, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Uh, yep. What are some of your favorite games of the year so far? Because we've had this weirdly front-loaded year where there's not yeah that there's, there's still a lot of great stuff coming out but i keep i make a list in my phone of the games that i've played throughout the year because i do a game of the year podcast and i 
have the memory of an old person. I just forget yeah. this stuff. But you think about um, we've had like Resident Evil, uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, yes. Dead Cells, Battlegrounds. Uh, like there's so many Empire just came out, Tacoma. There's so right. many great games that happened already this year. What's some of your favorite stuff? So many, yeah. I mean, this is turning out to be just an amazing year. I mean, I, I think that the game that I had the most fun overall and the one that um, that I uh, obsessively played all the way till the end and beyond was Horizon Zero Dawn. Love that, that, that That one just spoke to me for whatever reason. I just thought it was like the, you know, that was, came at a time when I was like, do I need to play any open world games? And, and that one was, you know, to me, it was like the... Uh, it just did everything right that, yep. the, that that I like about those kind of games. Everything was streamlined to just perfection, I thought. And in addition to having really good writing and strong characters, uh, so that's maybe my favorite so far, but um, I'm currently obsessed with uh, Splatoon 2 on, on the Switch, which I think is just a blast. Uh, I actually was Team Mayo, by the way, so I was in the minority of players <laughs> who, who won last night, uh, even though I hate Mayo. Oh, man, so good. I disagree. That's fine. Um, yeah, no, I, I was I wanted Team Mustard, but there was no such thing. So. <laughs> uh, let's see. I, I'm going to blank on other things. Of course, Zelda. Though, I was a little less bullish on Zelda than other people, though I do acknowledge, you know, um, it's, uh, you know, what it achieved and, and its innovations were, were incredible. Um, Mario Kart 8. It's been great. Yep. Uh, uh, let's see, Near Automata. Is That's what on I've my played. list. I'm ashamed I haven't beaten that yet. Yeah, I I've just barely scratched the surface. But what I but what I've liked, uh, I've really liked on that. Um, Neo. I played that for a long time. I mean, there's just an incredible amount of uh, great games this year. Um, I, I'm I'm sure I'm leaving some out. I actually just started. It's an indie game, but I just started playing on Steam. Uh, Hollow Knight. Oh, which yeah, is yeah. A, uh, a Metroidvania that is just absolutely gorgeous. So, and, and yeah, I mean, I, and I feel way behind. I, I feel like I, there's so much I haven't played. I'm so in the same boat. I'm I'm 45 hours deep in a Persona 5, and I'm at that point in my life where I'm weighing, like, I'm really enjoying this, but the more time I spend in this, the less time I have for other things that are just super interesting, like Hellblade uh is about to come out by the time this podcast is out the game will be out and like there's yeah. just, like so many random things where i am so interested in. if you haven't yet dead cells that is one of my favorite cells, yeah, early access that. games of the years that's, okay that it's great it's really yeah really we've fun. got uh we have the new middle earth game coming out oh my god uh, shadow four we've got uh mario of course coming out <laughs> can't believe that it, yeah it, it's a so yeah it's, this is a really great great year so. This is one of those years I will be extremely excited to listen to all the Giant Bomb Game of the Year stuff yeah. because yeah. there's a lot of arguments to be had. Are you going to be on any like Giant Bomb stuff in the near future? Is there going to be any Jeff Green Giant Bomb content? Uh, I don't. You'd have to talk to them. I don't. I don't <laughs> currently have any plans. I I'm always happy to talk with those guys at any time. Um, so you know, uh, they can feel free to have me on. I know that it, it's tougher for me to do these things now because of my job, but. But uh, all I really have to do is kind of not mention clients, and I can yeah. mostly mostly say what I want to say. There, there's always the the question of if a client hears me like bagging on something, could they theoretically think I'm talking about them? But I I, I think over the last year or two, I've I've learned how best to to not do that. I think we went through this. We went through this entire hour long podcast. I don't think you bagged on any clients. I think it went. I don't I think, think I did. did. You're probably not going to get in trouble at all from this. So I, I, I I may not, and if I do, I'm used to it. Yeah. I have a whole, whole career of getting in trouble. I'll just bleep it out. Don't worry about it. It'll be. They'll have no <laughs> idea. It'll be fantastic. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, where could people find you on Twitch and Twitter? On uh, Twitch and Twitter, I think it's the same name. It's Greenspeak. Uh, that's G R E E N S P E A K. Uh, that was the old name of my column from Computer Gaming World, so that is my it's at Greenspeak on Twitter, and uh, Greenspeak is my channel on Twitch. And I will be back. Uh, I'm moving houses uh, probably within a week, which is the main reason why I haven't been podcasting because it's kind of insane where I am. But when I'm set up at my new house, I will uh, I will return to live streaming. Um, everybody wants to see me beat Dark Souls three, so I need to make that happen. It's a good Dark Souls. That's a shockingly good Dark Souls. Uh, they're they're all shockingly good. 
They so. really are, yeah. Bloodborne maybe my favorite. That's the, we'll, we'll we can we can have an argument one day about like a yeah, Dark yeah. Souls I, Bloodborne. I may not argue with ranking. you. Yep. <laughs> uh, Jeff, thanks so much for doing this. It's it's really Thank you. it's cool to see that after you know going through games media and EA and PopGap, you found this job that, like you said, kind of emulates what you did the best. You get to work with people who you like, and yeah. your streaming is your streaming is great. I if Thank you. one day you Appreciate decide it. to I don't know maybe do a Patreon, I would totally support it. But either oh way, oh my god, thank you. There's my first five dollars. Yeah, <laughs> you got it. I'll do like seven. I feel like seven okay. is a good number. Right. Uh, uh, I'm gonna tell my wife. We're on our way. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's cool to see like how successful you are right now, how Thank you. uh consistent it. this yeah, this this job is and I look forward to seeing you get back to streaming. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, and thanks everyone for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the ten ninety nine.